you deserve the truth. The enemy is at our gates. The fight for humanity. I look at your faces. I do not see defeat. No! And I do not see surrender. It's far from over. You will not make that stand alone. We have something the enemy does not. We have heroes. Halo. New season now streaming. Exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Ready? Go. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Hang on! It's off the charts spectacular. Go, go, go! Tom Cruise has outdone himself. The world's coming after you. Stay out of my way. Prepare for one of the best action movies ever made. This is getting exciting. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome into the Odson Audibles podcast. Matt Premier, Scope with Jared Mack on the show today. Your Monday mailbag. We are already at week three. Uh, season <laughs> flies by, and it's another big game. Um, BYU's coming to town undefeated. They just knocked off top 10 team Baylor at home. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion leading into this one of just. This is this feels important, and I think that the questions justify it as well. Yeah, no, I think it's it's we're going to get some BYU talk at the end here, and I think that's the right choice because this is a really big matchup. This is a this is a ranked non-conference game at Autzen Stadium. Both teams ranked. I think it's interesting that the line moved quite a bit. Oregon opened, I think, at six and minus six and a half, and it's now down to minus three, minus three and a half in some places. So obviously, a lot of a lot of BYU money coming in, a lot of confidence in that team, and it makes sense with the way they've opened their season, um, knocking off number nine Baylor on Saturday night in a, in a real classic of a game. I mean, those that didn't get a chance to watch, go watch at least check out the highlights or an extended highlight package. That was a, a real grudge match. Um, that's kind of it, rare to see sometimes early on in the season where games can be pretty lopsided one way or the other um, as Oregon fans. And you know that. I mean, that game went down to the wire, needed two overtimes to determine it, and, and BYU ended up winning. So... Don't expect this to be a walkover game. I don't think most fans yep. do, but um, I mean, this team is now ranked 12th nationally. So if Oregon wins, there's an opportunity to move up quite a bit. And if, by the way, if Washington State beats Colorado State, they're kind of hovering in that other teams receiving votes range where I, I could see maybe that being another ranked meeting in week four up in Pullman where we'll be uh, in, in, in about, what, 13 days' time, 12 days' time. So the schedule not getting easier. This is going to be a challenging yeah. schedule and it really doesn't open up until you get past Washington state um, into the month of October. So first question from at Joey bond in 33, who is a player that has surpassed your expectations and who is a player that has, that you hope to see be more productive hashtag odds and audibles diplomatic way of, uh, of asking the second part rather than saying somebody we've been disappointed in somebody who we hope to see more production. I'd like that Joey. Cause that's, Probably the way I would try to frame it as well. Um, I'm going to give two offense, or sorry, two, yeah, well, one offense and defense for both, basically, is what I'm going to do here. I, I want to acknowledge, like, it's small sample size, but I think Sean Dollars has been really impressive, and I, I kind of had him pegged as their number four running back. I kind of thought it was Cardwell and the two transfers was the way it would go, and and, and it's really been, it's been kind of eye-opening how productive he's been. He's been I think he has the most yards from scrimmage of all of them. Uh, I know he's the only one not with a touchdown. But I've just been pressed by the way he's um, been able to be effective in, in every facet of the game. 
you know, as a pass catcher, he has had the longest, I think, play from scrimmage from for the whole season. Is that right? 39 yards, that screen pass he had? I don't think yeah. anything else has been yeah, more is. explosive. Um, I, I just think he's been really productive. He's got a great block on that, that, that spraying the first Terrence Ferguson touchdown. So I think he has proven himself more more valuable and certainly as this running back rotation, which we'll get to in a moment, um, kind of continues to evolve and they figure things out. I expect he'll be a, a central figure all season. I, and I didn't know if I would feel that way. I thought there was a possibility that he might be kind of the odd man left out by the time we get to week six or seven. And I, I don't expect that to be the case. Defensively, I, I think Casey Rogers has had at least his last game was really impressive. I know the first game mm-hmm. is hard to measure. I don't know if he recorded much of any stats that game, but was around the ball everywhere um, on rewatch, Jared. I don't know how they didn't record that as a sack. I mean, yeah, the quarterback it, was, was, it was a sack. The quarterback was was in a passing down and was rolling out and then tried to get upfield and Rodgers tackled him three yards. Behind the line of scrimmage. Yeah, three yards short shy of the line of scrimmage. That's a sack by all definitions. I was confused on rewatch of like, uh, that's that's a – so go back and correct that. Nate Kruger, get, get, get a game stats guy on that. <laughs> Give Tracy Rogers his credit. He should get his credit. So there, there, there's, there's the guys that I think have surpassed expectations. Um, and then the, a player or two that have kind of, I would like to see more, be more productive. I think offensively, uh, Chris Hudson is a guy that comes right to mind just because yep. I know he was Matt's pick for the team's receiving leader this year. And while I didn't pick him, he was like my number two or number three choice. And he just hasn't really had much of anything from a play from scrimmage perspective. Get a nice punt return on Saturday. I just haven't seen a whole lot from him. They tried to get him the ball in space, and, and those plays have been kind of eaten up. So I, I think there's a lot more there. Um, and I guess kind of a, another half of that would be Seven McGee kind of in the same mold. I think those slot guys I just expected to see a little bit more of, and, and I think we will as the season wears on. Uh, and then defensively, Noah Sewell probably is a player I want to see more production from. Not because I think he's played terrible this last game, because frankly, he didn't play that many snaps. Eastern Washington didn't really do much of anything running the football towards him. But I think he has like five tackles in two games, which is not where I expected he would be statistically, even though maybe those expectations were were, were too high for kind of the competition and how the opposing the opponent opposing teams were attacking Oregon defensively. So there, there's a couple guys I, I think have surpassed expectations and a couple that I'd like to see him be more productive going forward. I this I like your bye, Go ahead, Jared. Go ahead. No, no, no you're good. <laughs> I liked the dollars pick. That's who I was going to pick um, for the offensive side of the football here. I felt like that was the player least expected. I mean, I picked all the running backs but Dollar in the Jared stock report, um, <laughs> yeah. and he's leading the team in, in all-purpose yards. Um, so offensively, that would be one for me. Um, I like, I know it's kind of because the, they've been thrown on a little bit against Georgia, but I just like the production you're getting from Jamal Hill and Bennett Williams combined. I think that duo has, has done a really good job together. Um, Bennett's gotten really good in coverage. I think, um, has improved there offensively from guys that I would maybe shocked we're not seeing obviously it's Chris Hudson for me and. Um, like like Jared, like Eric said, Seven McGee too. He's not really been existent. I mean, I bought a lot of stock in him as well going into the season. Um, I think Dollars has kind of taken some of the usage that we were thinking Seven would get, but they did some end around type stuff for both Hudson and for Dollars in that Eastern Washington game. Got creative there. But those are two guys. Chase Cota too. I mean, I mean, I understand he's got five catches for forty-one yards, but 
that felt like what a game perspective would look like for him. Um, he looked like he'd be – I don't think he's been playing bad. It's just he just hasn't gotten the ball like I thought maybe he would based off the spring game. And then defensively, um, DJ Johnson is one of them for me. Only one tackle for loss, only one sack um, through two games. Four total tackles from DJ Johnson. Um, and they Georgia went kind of at him a little bit on the perimeter. I'd also maybe wonder at corner, Triquez, Bridges, and Dante Manning. I know Bridges had the interception. They played better against Eastern Washington. I think inferior talent helped there, but they really struggled against Georgia. Um, and they played Jalil Florence quite a bit in that second half against Georgia in place of Bridges and Manning, which is kind of interesting. Um so I would I would say those two guys would be some other guys on the defensive side of the football for me. I think this is a tough question to answer because like forty guys didn't play well against Georgia and now it's going off <laughs> of one game. So I you know, I like the Sean Dollars pick. I think we all didn't necessarily have him in like the top three of the running back contention. Uh, certainly not probably having this much of an impact. Um, again, uh, the running back rotation, we'll see. We'll, we'll answer that question later in the show. But, you know, we'll see where he ends up because um, as much as I think that they might do like a four- or five-man guy rotation for the season, I don't know. I think I think at one point they might just have to dwindle it down to three dudes. So we'll see who might be the odd man out there. But I do like what he's done this season. He's been uh, kind of a spark plug off the bench on, the, on those third-down situations. Um, offensively for me, I'm going with Troy Franklin. You know, he had a little bit of buzz about being the most consistent guy coming in into, into, into the season, excuse me. Um, obviously he has the 10 catches on Saturday against Eastern Washington. Um, that's clearly a highlight, but he still was pretty good against Georgia. He had two of the longer receptions of the day, specifically on the, uh, the, the end of the first half final drive for Oregon. Um, I think, I think he's been better than I had anticipated for sure. Um, I think, I thought, honestly, I thought that Dante Thornton and Troy Franklin were kind of equals and that I would actually give the edge to Thornton because of his size and length and speed. But Troy Franklin's been able to find his way to adapt to defenses, find the soft spot in zone, sit there, get catches, and develop some sort of chemistry and relationship with Bo Nix. So I I really like what I'm seeing from him so far on the offensive side of the ball. Um, also, uh, Marcus Harper, 100%. Yeah. Just totally exceeded expectations on that offensive line. Um, I don't think any of us had expectations for him going into the season, mostly because Ryan Walk was the presumed starter. Um, so big, big ups to Ryan or to Marcus Harper for being a, a really a, doing very well in his in his first career start and then his first uh, you know meaningful snaps in a game against Georgia in his first week. Uh, defensively, Casey Rogers, that was my guy. Eric, that was a good pick. Um, I think he's been better than anticipated. Um, he's been disruptive. He should have had a sack um, because he plays an interior defensive line position. His stats aren't going to be as good as an edge guy, but um, I, I think he's going to be very productive this season and, and cause a lot of, of mayhem in the backfield for opposing offenses. Disappointments or player I hope to see to be more productive. Um, I'll double up on Matt with, Dante Manning and Trequas Bridges. Um, I was all aboard the Dante Manning train heading into the season. Um, like Matt said, Bridges had the interception against Eastern Washington. They were both fine. 
Um, but Bridges was not great against Georgia. A lot of blown coverages there. Um, I think the secondary as a whole has been kind of up and down. Um, they haven't had a lot of lot of actual or not actual, but like a normal kind of a passing attack go against them yet. So I'm interested to see what that'll happen. I think it might against BYU, but then um, offensively, I don't know. I, I I mean I think people are are doing fine. Maybe you could put Bo Nix, but he was really good against Eastern Washington. Uh, it's just hard for me to judge because that Georgia game, nobody played well. I think another name defensively that we haven't mentioned for players to be more productive is Brandon Dorless. Um, yeah, not not that he's been I thought bad. about him. Not that he's been bad, but I, I think he has three tackles, one tackle for loss. Tackle for loss last game was really impressive, but that's a guy who has been kind of he's he's the alpha of the defense. That's what we've heard coming yeah. in, and he's been a little quiet. He and, he, he and Noah Sewell who have been kind of. You know, those are the two returning first team all conference guys. Neither have had kind of the production you'd expect. And maybe we'll get to this at the back end when we talk BYU. I think there should be more opportunity for that based upon yeah. at, least how, at least how BYU game plan and played against Baylor. Um, so I think those are those are names I think I'm kind of cautiously optimistic will have a little bit more production, even this even as soon as this upcoming week. All right. Second one from at Stephen Cole five four one. What do you think of the four-man running back rotation? Do you think it'll continue all season? Or is it more of a trial period to see who is best suited for the position? I'd love to hear your take. Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Jared kind of alluded a little bit to his perspective on it. And I probably share a little bit of it. I probably am closer to where Jared's at than, um, than it's staying at four. I, I think we'll see it get closer to three as the season goes down. I also am not totally sure it's going to go. Here's what I'd say. Right now, it's like I don't have snap counts. Um, I'd like to see snap counts per game. I think they might put those in the game notes. So that might be something to look at later for a content item, by the way. But I, the the touches so far, like if you're going to go through it through through um, through two games, the touches for the four running backs in contention, Dollars has 13 carries, Irving has 13 carries, Cardwell has 11 carries, and no, Whittington has 11 carries. And you go at receptions here. Dollars has four receptions. Cardwell has four receptions. Irving has two receptions, but it did drop two. And Whittington has two receptions. So, like, across the board, it's basically split. You know, you're mm -hmm. looking at, like, 18 to 13 touches for every one of those four guys. I would be surprised if that kind of split continues. I do think they might use all four for the entire season. But my guess is it gets closer to three players in – kind of a closer to us even split and then a fourth guy who's maybe used more situationally i'm not even going to try to wager a guess of who gets dropped or what the hierarchy looks like of who's starting they play two games two different guys have started i bet you it could be a third guy start against byu i wouldn't count that out at all so i and, and to the initial part what do i think of it i i don't mind it at all um i know it's been kind of a hot topic on our message board um people don't like that that they're not just using two guys or, you know, prioritizing one player as the kind of lead back. I, I'm not bothered by that. This, this is, this is becoming pretty common in college football. Uh, if you have the numbers and it's becoming even kind of common in the NFL. Like you look yep. at a couple of teams here that have started the season basically with two starting running backs and those players play equal snaps, play a lot together, even on the field. And I think we're going to see a little bit more of that, maybe a little bit more two running back sets if they if they feel comfortable with it. But I'm not that bothered by a four man running back rotation. 
Uh, and then to the second question, I think long-term, eventually this will probably become closer to like a three-player rotation based upon Dillingham's history. And I think at some point you'll see the touches stop being so even. Because right now, again, it's like the rushes are basically even, the receptions and targets are basically even. Like the opportunities to get the football have basically been even for four players through two games. And I don't know if that's going to be something I expect um, when we get into like at least into October. I could see it being somewhat similar against BYU next week, maybe. But I could also see it being a really competitive game and they just decide, hey, Byron is having an awesome game or Bucky's having an awesome game. Let's ride with the hot hand in the fourth quarter to try to put this one away. This is going to be a hot hand show, 100%. Um, you know, I, I, I touched on it just a bit. I think I touched on it on the post-game podcast as well. I'm, I not that I agree with the message board that this is an issue. I'm just a, I just like my running backs in like a little old school more manner where it's really two guys and you have a third that jumps in every once in a while to give rest or is specifically a third down back. Um, this is, I mean, this is almost like a six man running back room just because like you know they threw seven McGee in the backfield uh, mm-hmm. against Eastern Washington. Um, again, former running back, he can certainly do it if, if, like, I don't know, if someone goes down. That was the thought process that we had before um, Irving and, and Whittington and Jordan James either committed or transferred to Oregon, the idea that they could move Seven McGee back to running back. But uh, this is – I don't look at it as a bad thing. Um, I think it's great that they have four guys who have all shown that they can be productive. It's one thing if you have four or five guys and they go out there and that they're, frankly, not that good – but every single one of these running backs has shown that in spurts, you know, they can get you 10 to 12 yards on a carry. They can catch the ball out of the backfield. They can pass block every once in a while. Um, I think pass blocking actually might be what it comes down to in the long run of like just who can provide the best protection and who's the best option out of, out of the backfield and catching, catching passes. So I think that's something to monitor. Um, but personally, again, yeah, I would, I would be surprised if it stick if it sticks at a four to five man running back rotation for most of the season. Like Eric said, I could see it going against BYU. You might have to pull some stunts because you know BYU is a very good team. You want as many I don't know tricks in the basket as you possibly can. And but you know going against Washington State, and then going into conference like deep conference play in October, November. I really think that they'll be whittling it down to three guys. And again, like Eric said, I'm not going to take a guess on who those three guys are because every, every single one of these guys, like Eric mentioned, has very similar reps. They have very similar numbers too. Um, again, there's, you know, Sean dollars has the longest reception of the season, but you know, Marquis serving average, like eight over eight yards of carry last game. So there's, there's some talent there. There's some real talent in that running back room and I'm not going to guess who the three guys are that take most of the talent away. I think we're going to see this as long as it's successful until otherwise proven it's not. Um, I don't know. There's no rule that you have to go to two or one or three or five. It doesn't really matter. There's You play what you work, you know, what you want to play. And as long as it keeps working, uh, they will continue to do that. And so far through two games, I think it's working. Um, I, I think there's one thing personally, definitively, that we can state that dollars, if they do pare it down, dollars will be in that group. And I think we can say definitively that dollars is the team's third down back. He's in there almost exclusively on third down um, to start games. Uh, he 
is tied for the team in attempts with 13 carries. He has the most rushing yards on the team. He has the highest average per carry on the team at seven, which is, you know, 0.1 away from what Cardwell is at, at, at 6.9 and 0.3 away at Marquis yeah. Irving. Right. Um, you know, so it's, it's, you're literally splitting hairs here, but you also look at the receiving end and he's got the longest catch of the season at 39 yards off a of screen play, which I think came on a third down. Um, I want to say he's got the most catches of running backs. Oh, Cardwell has they both have four, uh, four as well. Um, but he's up there. I so I think definitive. I I feel like right now at least definitively we can say if they pair things down, Dollars will make the cut, and that Dollars is the third down back if it's a passing situation. Um, should they? Do they need to? I don't know. I don't think so. I I mean as long as it's working and. You look at what this team is doing from a rushing standpoint. Um, Dollars is averaging seven yards carry, Irving 6.7, Cardwell 6.9, and then Whittington is at 3.9. I mean, if Whittington's numbers aren't great, but they're also not like, oh my gosh, he shouldn't be playing. He's 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 not on par with with these guys. I mean, he has a 20-yard run to his name, uh, so it's out there. Yeah, and some of his, you know. So I guess long story short, long-winded answer. I don't, th- I don't see them changing this this philosophy until uh, it it's proven that it's hurting them and not helping them from a developmental standpoint. And people were wondering why Jordan James didn't get in against Eastern Washington. Conspiracy theory here. Mm. Uh, they are using, they are planning to redshirt him, and normally it would be, well, why wouldn't you do it? against Eastern Washington. I think it's because they want to use Jordan James in maybe the four toughest games of the season. I almost Probably. posted I almost posted verbatim that on the message board yesterday, Matt. That's we have we're both That's have the same, thought, yeah. the same tin well, we all have the same tinfoil caps on here. I think they're mm-hmm. saving those games because the four game rule makes it so you can be pretty strategic when you use them. Yeah. Um, they knew they didn't need them against Eastern Washington and they knew they have four and now five guys because Kilo from Hilo played really well. Credit, credit James Crepia from the Kilo from Hilo thing, um, which I think is also – is it it's, also, his, it's his Twitter tag. Okay, yeah, so credit Twitter handle. So credit, credit Kilo, Kilo. Credit yeah. Kilo Hana for, for Kilo from Hilo. But James is the one who told me that first. James refers to him exclusively as Kilo from Hilo. Um, as he should. No, I, I feel similarly about that. I, I think you know you've got a rotation of four guys. You don't know if you need to play James in these games. Plus, everyone's healthy right now. Knock on all the wood. And if a player goes down and you want to maintain a three to four player rotation, James can now be available against Utah in November, against Washington, against Oregon State, against UCLA in October, whatever the games are you feel like you might need him. If you do need him, I think that makes some sense in terms of trying to retain his redshirt year. And then I had one thought, one thing on the no Whittington part, um, because statistically you would say he has been not as good as the other three. It's a really small sample size, and a lot of the th- there's also a thing called bad luck as a running back. Yep, and he has the most yards lost by a significant manner, twelve. I don't think any of those are like his fault. That wasn't him missing a hole and just getting tackled. That is penetration by the opposing defense. Like if you go back and watch the Eastern Washington game, he lost eleven yards in that game, and I think three different plays got just absolutely blown up. And I don't think that was his fault. I think that was an offensive line missing assignment. 
um, or a defensive player made a really good play and, and beat an offensive lineman and blew up a play in the backfield. I want to see a bit more sample size before we just totally write him off um, because I think there's become this inclination already of like, well, he's the fourth, not, not amongst us, but against those on the message board because, you know, I spend some time reading. I'm curious to see what fans think about this running back rotation. I've spent a lot of time reading the thread. Whittington's kind of been written off. I get it from a statistical perspective. But again, we're talking 11 snaps or 11 rushes so far, 13 rushes for these guys. They're not all made even. And I think yeah. if you were if you were to be objective and go and actually watch the plays, I think Whittington has had the worst luck in terms of facing fronts that have been in the backfield. And I think, frankly, Cardwell and Dollars and Irving have had pretty good luck with pretty favorable situations in terms of holes to run through. So that's just a little bit of me defending a guy who I said I think because I had heard incredible things about Noah, and through four in two games statistically at least he's been the most underwhelming, although he did get the start last game, so clearly the staff likes him as well. So um, that's going to end our running back talk, but I think a lot there in terms of, of of kind of our opinions on this running back situation going into a game where I expect the running backs play to be really integral to the final outcome here. Oregon has to run the ball against BOU successfully, um, and I frankly think they'll have a good chance to do that. All right, third one from at John Olvera. I love the game Saturday. While I was glad to see the other quarterbacks get some real game reps, I don't understand the standing ovation Ty got. It's not like Bo didn't play a great game. I know we had a good lead, but I would have liked to have seen the playbook open for both quarterbacks. I think he's talking about Butterfield at the end. Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, I actually just wanted to get your opinions because I wasn't at the game, and I kind of you, you kind of caught a little bit of Ty getting a pretty rousing reception. First off, just to both you guys, because you guys were there, and I assume the press window was open. Yep, was, yep. was it was it something of significance? Because this is the this is not the first yeah. time I've seen somebody be like, "Hey, it was a lot." Was, was it a lot? Was did it bother you guys at all? Is it is it a storyline we should be monitoring? Like, what do we think about that? Well, in terms of a storyline we should be monitoring, probably not. Was it okay. a really loud ovation for some reason that I also don't understand why Ty got? Yes, um, I thought it was. Probably one of the louder ovations of the night in terms of like, you know, who was announced in the starting lineups are usually a good barometer of how many, you know, what, what the popularity of that player is. Um, when when Ty was announced and he was taking the field, it was a pretty big ovation, and I don't I don't get it. I'm I'm like our good friend John Olvera who asked the question where, you know, Bo was 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 really good. You know, you know five touchdown passes, almost over 280 yards. I just I didn't understand it at the time. I don't think it's a storyline to follow. I think it is very similar to last year um, with just the, the Ty Thompson hype. And, um, you know, as soon as, as soon as a quarterback performs poorly, even though Knicks did not in this past game, um, he's just going to get the eventual ovation and, and calls from the audience to come onto the field. Um, I thought it was nothing, honestly. I think this is just the normal backup QB getting put into the game that's got a lot of excitement. I mean, I go back to when Kellen Clemens was the starting quarterback at Oregon and Dennis Dixon was the freshman. And blowout scenario comes in and Dixon comes in. There's just a lot of interest in seeing Ty Thompson play. And he got thrown out there and fans have been clamoring for two years for the previous coaching staff to put the foot on the throat of their opponent 
and put yourself in a position where you can put your backups in the game. And it never really happened. And in the first game of Dan Lanning's career at Austin stadium, it happened and backups went in and I, I, I thought it was nothing. Um, it was the normal cheer that I've been going to football games, Eric, you, you, you too at Austin for 30 years. And it's the normal cheer that you hear every single time. There's a lot of interest in whoever the backup quarterback is, and he gets in the game. It, that, that's plain and simple all it was in my eyes. All right, to the second part, though, or to the last part from John's question, um, would we have liked to see Jay be allowed to kind of maybe have some – have like a real drive? Because Ty did – the playbook was open for Ty. I mean, you watched it. Yeah. Ty was allowed to throw the ball. They allowed a deep shot. Honestly, probably the ball that traveled the furthest – for the entire game yes. was the ball he threw down the sideline to Josh Delgado where, you know, he overthrew him. But I like the fact that they were letting the playbook kind of be open there, let Ty show off that arm. I know it wasn't accurate, but you could see that was like 45 plus yards in the air. Um, again, not on the money, but he, he, he can, he can air it out a little bit. Ty had two good drives. He didn't throw for a touchdown, both resulted in touchdowns five for seven, I think 63 yards. All that was great. Jay gets in with a lot of time left in the fourth quarter. I mean, plenty of time if you wanted to simulate a drive and it was, Handoff, handoff, one yard pass attempt. I can't. I think he completed it to Kilo. Um, what What did we make of that? Would we have liked to see a little bit more Jay, or are we just kind of going, "Hey, at this point, clearly Bo's the number one, Ty's the number two, Jay's away from getting into a game that matters. Let's Let's not be too worried about Jay not playing and getting much of an opportunity. Because I, because I, because I personally would have, I wouldn't have hated to at least see him have a series where it's like playbooks open, go for it. And maybe the playbook was more open and he also didn't execute it. And that, that was part of it. But um, would we have liked to see, maybe the question is, would we have liked to see a little bit more from, from Jay in terms of moving the ball, whether it be playbook or also his own lack of production for whatever reason in that drive? Sure. I don't, I, I don't know. Like, yeah, it would have been nice to, to see all three quarterbacks have an opportunity to make a drive. Um, I think very clearly it's like you said, Eric, I think it's very clearly Bo, then Ty, then Jay. Um, you know, we were we were down on the field for most of Jay's drive. So I don't we didn't really get to dissect it from our view up in the press box like we normally would. Um, and, yeah, it would have been nice to see Jay have a chance to go out there and show his stuff like Ty did for his two drives. I mean, clearly Ty had the open playbook and they called deep shots. They called probably plays that they had ran earlier in the game for Bo and just to see what he could do. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it would have hurt to have him go. I mean, the game's an absolute blowout. There's no no possible chance, no matter how poorly somebody messes up, that this game is in any contention. So yeah, it would have been nice, but I don't it, – it doesn't necessarily like matter to me whether or not he got his opportunities to go in. Like, yeah, it would have been nice, but – he didn't, and I think that's kind of just the barometer where the quarterback competition is. Um, he got in with, what, like seven or eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter? I think it was more like nine, but yeah, we're, cut, we're splitting hairs. It wasn't a lot of time. And it was like 70 to 14. Um, I, as you guys said, it's clear. Ty is the backup. Um, I think Bo kind of let that out of the bag that it was him versus Ty during fall camp. Um, yeah when he spoke after the Auburn or the, the Georgia game, I, I just think this is third string quarterback. You're up 56 points. 
you don't want to, I mean, you've already kind of embarrassed Eastern Washington. You don't need to pour now salt on the open wound um, by throwing it around and um, airing it out with your third string quarterback. Had it, had it been early fourth quarter, like the start of the fourth quarter and Bo Nix didn't play at all in the second half and Ty got all of the third quarter. Yeah. Give him a drive and to run the, you know, the normal stuff and see what happens. But at that point in the game, all you're doing is just pissing off coaches and pissing off players and opening the door for a player to get upset on the other side and react and hurt somebody. And no, no one wants that. So I, I, I had no issue with it. And Eastern Personally. Washington, Eastern Washington has a history of getting mad yes. about things and hurting Oregon's quarterbacks. So I mean, I'm kind of <laughs> tongue in cheek there because very yes. different circumstances. Um, yes. It, by, by the way, this uh, is just a small a small aside, Matt. Before we go to break, yeah, I, it, I I can't imagine what it would be like in today's age where, or let's say Oregon had played Auburn in the opener and Oregon was beating Auburn at home, and then Auburn's player took out Bo Nix with a cheap shot. That would have been like. Like it feels crazy that happened in a game at or at Oregon like eight years ago. If that happened to now, I think that would have been like a and maybe it was then too. But like it feels like that's like a thing that you just don't see happen. I guess the odds of playing against your opposing you know your former school in week one it's just not very likely. But like it's kind of crazy that they took a massive cheap shot on Vernon Adams because he transferred schools and hurt him in the very first game of the season. First game of the season, yes. Just if, just if, weird. If social media was where it was at. Seven years ago, it would be a much bigger, bigger thing. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll uh, wrap up these mailbag questions with a little bit of focus on BYU, who comes to town this weekend, ranked inside the top 15. This is Sandra Oreda from Attacking Third, a podcast part of the CBS Sports Golasso Network dedicated to all things women's soccer. With the NWSL expanding to 14 teams, the 2024 season promises to be bigger and better than ever, and Attacking Third will be along for the ride from start to finish. Before that, though, we'll be all over the CONCACAFW Gold Cup, where the U.S. Women's National Team is looking to clinch silverware on home soil. We'll also be keeping tabs on the Winter Transfer Window, the Women's Super League, the UEFA Women's Champions League, and elsewhere. Coming to you multiple times a week with game previews, recaps, analysis, breaking news, exclusive interviews, and more. Attacking Third is your one-stop shop for the best coverage of the women's game. Download follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere podcasts are found. Make sure you subscribe to Attacking Third. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We're in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to the Ots and Audibles podcast. Uh, three questions in the mailbag, two more to go. Um, BYU-centric, it looks like. Yeah, and the fourth one is from Ross Maysolich. And by the way, Ross asked a question a couple weeks ago, and I, mm-hmm. I and I asked him on the podcast to clarify his name. Ross, let me know how I did there. He sent me a direct message on Twitter, tried to Ooh. clarify it. I think, 
I think that right there was pretty good. Ross Mesolich, if I'm wrong, let me know. Um, question from Ross. How comfortable do you feel with Oregon's defense against BYU as they will present similar challenges Oregon faced in week one? Mobile quarterback, screen game with explosive wide receivers, etc. dot, 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 hashtag odds and audibles. Um, for starters, their quarterback's a guy, man. I was, I, again, I watched most of the fourth quarter and both overtimes um, in that game. And I came away pretty darn impressed with Jaron Hall. Um, guy's really mobile, which could give Oregon problems. The drive at the end of the regulation, which resulted in a missed field goal, but looked like it was going to be the game-winning drive, um, was extended with his legs with a couple of really nice runs where he – one was a scramble, one was, I think, a designed run. But regardless, he's, he's going to be a problem. And he's going to be – he's not Stetson Bennett. But he's not 50 miles off like what you saw with Gunnar Talkington this last weekend. Like, I mean, he's he's a, he's a very capable player who I think Jaron Hall will play in the NFL at some level, whether it be practice squad, backup. I don't know if he's, he's not think he's a starter, but he's 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 got that set of athleticism at least. So there, to start with, I think Jaron Hall's a guy, and I think that he's someone not to be taken lightly in this matchup. Um, the explosive receivers part is interesting to me because. We don't know if BYU's best two receivers are going to play in this game. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in in the in this last game against Baylor, that was really impressive that they were able to win that game without Puka Nakua and Gunnar Romney, who were the two top returning receivers um, from last year's season. Nakua has an ankle injury. Romney um, undisclosed, whatever that means. Um, so. And there's no clarity about, at least as of Monday morning when we're recording this, about either of them playing this week. I think that's pretty significant. It's also significant that Chase Roberts, um, a freshman receiver for BYU, had eight catches for 122 yards and a touchdown. And a couple of those came in really big spots when I was watching. Um, he sort of filled in there as their alpha guy, their go-to receiver, and had some pretty nice returns um, in that role. I'll, I'll be kind of curious to see um, how he, how, if he can continue that against against Oregon. Um, Baylor has a great defense; it's one of the best defenses in the country, and he was winning one on one battles out there against them. That was the, that was the reason why I was pretty cautious about kind of expecting BYU to win that game because you've got Hall, who I think is a good quarterback, going against a great defense without his top two receivers. That can be a challenge. Well, we'll now see what Oregon can do. And it's not like, by the way, BYU just lit up the scoreboard. They had 20 points in regulation. They ended up with 26 points to win. Is that going to be enough to beat Oregon? I'm not sure. I think it's going to be a challenge. But I do think, if we just get to the original question here about the defense against against BYU's offense, this is, this is not going to be easy. Um, Hall will cause, cause problems. Their run game, I mentioned earlier why I kind of think we might see a little bit more Noah Sewell, a little bit more Justin Flo, maybe a little bit more Brandon Dorless, some of those interior guys. BYU, even against a strong Baylor front that has one of the better nose tackles in um, Siaka Iki, or Siaki Ika, I think I got that right. Polly names, man. Former LSU guy transferred to Baylor. Huge body in the middle of their defense. Going to be an NFL player. They ran at that part of the field with, I want to say, an incredible amount of success um, only had 85 yards rushing, but they tried to, and they ran it 33 times in the game. So 
uh, I think they will be more assertive in terms of trying to establish the line of scrimmage and running the football against Oregon. And that's where we'll see a little bit, another opportunity really to see kind of how Oregon stacks up in the middle there. Because I do think BYU will not shy away from challenging there. And if Oregon can win those battles and force it to be Jaron Hall running around, making plays and trying to throw it to outside receivers who may or may not be his favorite guys, that's where Oregon might have an advantage. But I think I think it's pretty critical, the health of these two receivers for BYU, because Naku is like a legit NFL guy. He started his career at Washington, yep. at Washington, transferred back. And then Romney, I think, was Romney somewhere else too in transfer? Has he always been there? He might just be one of those guys who's on a mission. So I he's think been he's always he's been been a BYU kid. Yeah, I think he's been around for like 45 years because he's one of those he's one of those uh, BYU kids. But I, I also think, I might be wrong on this, I think he's Mitt Romney's like nephew or something. So Well, that's what I was going to look up too. I think he is. I think there's some relation yeah. there. So regardless, uh, I'll look that up in a second while you guys talk, and I'll, I'll confirm it later. But um, thank you, thank you. I, I, I think uh, I think the health of those two will be potentially a pretty big deal. I think yeah, I agree with the health uh, aspect of those two guys going out because that significantly limits where uh, BYU and their offense can go to. But I admittedly have not popped in any tape. I have not looked at BYU. I have not watched the Baylor highlights. Um, I am interested. I've looked at the stats of the game and just the general overall numbers, but I'm not going to make some blanketing statements just because you know they, they ran for 85 yards. I do think that BYU is going to be a team, like Eric said, that is that are going to try and be physical with Oregon. Um, that's just kind of their brand of football. Um, I think Kalani Sataki, their head coach, I think he's uh, he's a physical guy. He's going to he. If this were a Mario Cristobal game for Oregon, this would be just physical and physical. It'd be like seven to three because they'd just be running it on every <laughs> single down. But I, I think that's what's going to happen for the most part. And I think that's why you, you might see an uptick in production, like Eric mentioned, from Noah Sewell or Brandon Dorliss, Casey Rogers, somebody like that. Um, but dealing with mobile quarterbacks, I, I don't know if I would say Stetson Bennett is a mobile quarterback. Is Can he move? Yes. He's no Tom Brady or anything like that. But I think BYU is going to have a more mobile quarterback here. They're going to be somebody who actually can can run their quarterback and move them outside the pocket. And if the if the pressure comes from the outside, they'll be able to move around and stuff like that. Like I think Stetson Bennett was agile and able to move, but I think this is a different thing. And so my to answer Ross's question of how comfortable do I feel. Um, I'm going to have to put like an I don't know or an NA because I just I need to watch more BYU. I need to put that in and really kind of dissect what they do as an offense. Um, I feel better after Eastern Washington just because they did Oregon did do a better job along the perimeter and tackling with um, you know, gang tackles, getting a lot of guys to the ball. Um, but you know, BYU is, is a different team. They're a much better team than Eastern Washington. They're going to be one of the better teams that Oregon is going to play for the rest of the season. Um, they've earned that number 12 ranking that, you know, that, that win over Baylor was, uh, you know, at home to great home field win. Uh, I think we'll talk about that later in the show as well, but um, I'm, you know, I'm interested to see how Oregon performs against another really good team because Georgia, obviously now ranked number one is considered the best team in the country. I think that they belong right there and the, I think they'll stay there for the long run. But BYU is, is, is a much better competition level than Eastern Washington. So now Oregon gets, just gets in as a ranked team at number 25. We'll, we'll be able to see if this is 
a more comparable game because I think there are very few teams in the country who are going to match up well with Georgia. But I think that Oregon has the chance to match up with BYU, but this will be the test, and Oregon gets the advantage of being home. Oregon had just a sheer size advantage against Eastern Washington. Um, yeah. That will not be the case against BYU. They are huge for a group of five air quotes team. I mean, their offensive line is six eight, six five, six five, six eight, six six, and every single one of them is over three hundred pounds. By the way, um, Kingsley Suomatias returned to Odson Stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, Projected starting right tackle for the BYU Cougars. Their tight ends, Isaac Rex is 6'6, 250. Their receivers, the guys that they start, 6'2, 6'2, 6'4. Um, even their running backs are tall dudes. Chris Brooks and uh, Katoa are both 6'1, and their third back is a 6'2 guy. And Brooks, who's their leading rusher and a senior, is 230 pounds. So. He played at Cal, by the way. Yes. Um, Oregon, this will be a physical game. And if you can't control the perimeter and you can't control the line of scrimmage, you will get beat and it will be ugly. And is there concern for me? Yeah, I think there is because I don't think Eastern Washington presented athletically, physically, and talent-wise a real strong challenge to this Oregon team. And – the last time that we've seen a team that did, they got waxed. They got ran over, and they could not stop anybody. Will it be like that week three against BYU? No, I don't think so, But because I don't think BYU is as good as Georgia, not even close. But we don't still have an idea yet of how, how good or how bad this Oregon defense is until they play a team like BYU. So, yeah, there's there's a high-level concern here for me. By the way, re, just coming back on that Gunnar Romney thing, distant mm-hmm. relatives, according Ooh. to a, a news report um, from 2020, from Baylor Romney, who is the younger brother of Gunnar Romney. He says distant relatives, but not a lot more information. So there you go. It's a shame. Final question from at my, oh boy, Rado. I, had, I didn't really give this a good enough read coming in. So I'm, I'm looking at this for the first time. Rad O'Brien, Rad O'Brien. This guy's going to have to tell me how to say his name as well. I, I, I feel bad. Um, you think that's his name? I think Brian. Is, I think Brian is his name, probably. Maybe I would agree there. Um, anyway, you're going to have to get, get give me some insight to pronounce this. Uh, but yeah, the question: Yes, BYU beat Baylor, but it was at their place with a great crowd. How much do you think that helped them? And conversely, how much can Otson hurt them? Um, of course, it helps playing at home. BYU does have a great home environment. And I think another thing to be aware of going into this game, BYU travels really well. Um, historically, <laughs> BYU will have a lot of people in Eugene. Um, I could see it being one of the more impressive visiting crowds from a non-conference perspective that we've seen at Otson in a while. Just be prepared for that, especially those going to the game. There could be a lot of BYU people, in part because, sure, they travel, but there's also a large Mormon community throughout the West Coast and even in Oregon, and those people are, for the most part, BYU fans based upon the church, even if they didn't attend the school. Um, So there will be some BYU folks here. Shoot, we had an intern a couple of years ago who 
is now down in Utah, Alec Arend, who had ties to BYU. Um, and he was, you know, lived in Eugene. A lot of people who are from that, you know, faith live in Eugene. So there could be a lot of BYU people. I'm just putting that out there. So how much can it hurt them? I think Oregon fans need to be showing up in droves. I know it was a little bit underwhelming from a home debut turnout for several reasons. Smoke, the fact that, got, the fact that they, they got smoked the week previously by Georgia, and then the fact that it was an FCS program. But this is a game where you, I know students aren't back, which hurts, but you want, I, I'd like to see, if you're an Oregon fan, this place just packed and have it be loud and have it be a problem because this could also be a thing where it won't be like Justin Herbert at a home game at SoFi Stadium where the Raiders have as yeah. many fans. And it's like, that was wild, by the way, not to that do just funny. A, a brief tangent of it. Like they're, they're driving to like ice the game and the crowd is like, just as, as like basically completely against them, like trying to get them to like drop off sides and, or uh, to false start and things because there's just a ton of Raider fans there. That won't be, I don't think that'll be the case. It won't be outnumbered by BYU fans, but I'd expect there to be eight to 12,000, maybe more BYU fans at this game. I, I think it'll be a lot. So um, I, I think that part is big. And to the, to the part of how much did it help them? Of course, it helps to play at home, period. Yeah. Um, Oregon was never going to beat Georgia, but if that game was played at Autzen, my expectation would be it would be at least a touchdown closer. Like Oregon probably would have scored a touchdown in that game, maybe. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. Um, some of the execution probably would have been better because it didn't help Oregon that they were playing that game in, again, not technically a road game, a neutral site game, but in the state of Georgia where it was 90% Georgia fans. So um, I, think, I think obviously college football home field that's a big part. I think that's why Oregon's favored in this game. If this game was played in Provo, I'd be betting pretty good money this game would be favored towards BYU. So um, yeah. I think it's I think it's a big one for the home fan base. Yep. Yeah. Uh, to answer the first part of the question, how much did BYU's home field advantage help them and beat Baylor? Um, I mean, I get none of those guys played on the field, obviously, but a home field advantage is it's clearly a, a massive thing for all football <coughs> programs. Um, you look at Texas and Alabama. You know, that's the first true road game at a conference game for Alabama. And I think was like 10 years almost. Um, that Texas crowd and, and the ability just to play in that heat and be used to it, that helped them tremendously. Um, and you're going to want Oregon to have that same advantage. And, you know, can, to talk about how much it'll hurt BYU on the road with Autzen Stadium, I'm not sure. I mean, Autzen is one of the best places to play in the country. It gets unbelievably loud. You have plenty. Of, it'll, it'll, it will try to hurt them. You know, it. In the past, you know, Oregon is is very, very good at home, and but BYU, like Eric said, they travel. Um, this is a more experienced team. Um, with teams like that, sometimes the road aspect doesn't necessarily affect them in other ways as as it would with a younger team or a team that doesn't play in those types of environments often. But, um, you know, I would expect that there to be a sellout crowd in Austin come Saturday. Um, I think this is one of the bigger home games of the year until we get later into the season in November. And now that BYU is coming off of a great win over Baylor, a number 12 team in the country, that adds even more to it. So um, I, I think, it, you know, obviously Oregon's going to have an advantage. And like Eric mentioned, I think that's why they're favorited as well in this matchup because they are playing at home. And, you know, because they had a, a really good week one home opener 
um, or excuse me, a week two home opener, I guess. Um, but you know, we'll we'll see eventually and how it how it transpires. But you know, having Odson at your back if you're the Oregon Ducks, that's certainly beneficial. Um, will it help them in terms of winning the game? Well, that'll that'll be for on the field more than anything else. Oregon's gonna need a a loud stadium. Uh, there will be a lot of BYU fans in attendance for this game. Um, Oregon has played BYU in basketball multiple times in Eugene or in Portland, and there were a lot of BYU fans for those games. So I would anticipate Autzen, especially if there's a lot of tickets available, and especially if BYU with BYU winning last week at home against top 10 Baylor, there will be fans that will be wearing the blue and white in Austin and there will be a sea of it. It'll be a pretty big group. So if you're on the fence and you want to have an impact on this game, I would say, yeah, go to this game. Cause this, you know, Oregon's going to need a, a, a large raucous crowd. We saw, I, I mean, I felt like we saw the crowd at, at Provo impact that game with the missed kicks by the, by the kickers um, in that game. BYU also is coming in really confident in this one as they should be. I mean, they beat Baylor, which is a top 10 team, a good program last couple of seasons under Dave Aranda. Um, and then they don't look at the PAC 12 as a program or a conference that is superior to them because go look at what they did last year. They beat Arizona. They beat Utah. They beat Arizona state. Uh, they beat Washington state. And they beat USC. They beat half the Pac-12 essentially last season, um, and they are not going to. They are not going to be scared of of what they're going to face. And a lot of those guys on that team are back on this year's team. You know, they Oregon is going to need a good environment. They're going to need to play good, um, and they're going to need a crowd that's going to be engaged from the start to the end of this game. Uh, to win. It's an all-hands-on-deck type atmosphere for Oregon football uh, week three against BYU, in my opinion. I think we all agree. And we should note, yeah. Oregon third in the country with the longest home win streak at 20 games right now. So that's, that's and advantageous. I wanted to bring that up, and I forgot to. Go back and look at the, the teams that they've played um, in that schedule of games. This BYU team might be the best team that Oregon has faced during that streak. Um, and it might not even be close. I mean, I, I think the only one that would be in line to potentially be, be be better than BYU was the 2018 Washington team, which came to town seventh in the country. Um, yeah. And Oregon won that one by three points. And I think, I think Washington maybe have ended up losing three or four games that season. I can't, I can't remember, but there are not a lot of heavy laden teams that came to Autzen during this streak. So this will be this will be the toughest team Oregon's probably faced during that stretch. Uh, and I don't think it, it might not be close. Yeah, I think that Washington team is was was a pretty decent team. I think they lost two games after that. Yeah, um, they, I, I think that correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure they won the North Division that year as well yeah. but i'm with you this is definitely one of the tougher teams you're right this is i think just the third ranked team in that stretch uh washington mm -hmm. i think was also ranked 
oh no, that game didn't get played, so never mind. It was there. That was in the canceled section of that that because yes. that was that weird deal where yeah. it got canceled. So never mind. They haven't played another. This is this is going to be just the uh, yeah the second ranked team Oregon has played during that span at home, as far as I can tell. Scrolling through all these results, so big outcome, big big tough game here against BYU. We'll have full coverage. We'll be at media all week and uh, preparing for again what I think is going to be one heck of an environment and a, and a great opportunity for an Oregon team that that started by putting themselves really in a hole by dropping a terrible game to start the season, you win this game, you give yourself an opportunity to kind of move back to respectability nationally. If you go win in Pullman the following week, I think a lot is kind of, the, I think the perspective has changed quite a bit. They're sure there's going to be people who've been saying, wow, Oregon's a pretty good team and the SEC must be awesome. Georgia's incredible. But I do think it'll give Oregon fans, an, uh, well, Oregon fans and also the national perspective, a little bit of a, bu- a boost because if they start out three and one here, that's going to be pretty impressive to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. We'll have more coverage of this matchup and more on DuckTerritory.com throughout the week. Later tonight, Monday night, Dan Lanning will give his kind of review of Eastern Washington and then early thoughts ahead towards playing BYU. And so we'll have a ton of content that comes from that. We'll have more stuff later on this week previewing the game here on the podcast and as well on DuckTerritory.com. But until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Spring training is in full swing and fantasy baseball draft season is upon us. That means you need to join us on Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every Monday through Saturday for six pods per week throughout the month of March. We'll break down the latest news, spring training updates, players to target, and much more in just five minutes. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found.